0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast.
1: I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed, journalists, independent investigators, people like that, disappeared. It frightened her to the bone.
2: There's more to the story than meets the eye.
1: There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous, crimes. He was polygraphed three times each of those three showed evasions. Well, his resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world and particularly mad at the government. The
3: study that he commissioned it described a
0: fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth.
4: You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck?
0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavor to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about Bob Lazar. So Robert Scott Bob Lazar, born on January 26th of 1959, is an American conspiracy theorist and self-proclaimed physicist who claims he was hired in the late 1980s to reverse engineer extraterrestrial technology. This work supposedly occurred at a secret site called S4, a subsidiary installation allegedly located several kilometers south of the United States Air Force facility, popularly known as Area 51. Lazar purports to have examined an alien craft and read US government briefing documents that described alien involvement in human affairs over the past 10,000 years. His claims brought additional public attention to Area 51 and fueled conspiracy theories surrounding its classified activities. His assertions have been analyzed and rejected by skeptics and some UFOlogists, although he retains a following of supporters. Lazar has no evidence of alien life or technology, and elements of his claimed education and employment history have been exaggerated or fabricated. Perceptions of Lazar have also been affected by his criminal activity. He was convicted in 1990 for his involvement in a prostitution ring, and again in 2006 for selling illegal chemicals, which we will get into later in this podcast. Journalist Ken Lin states, and I quote, A lot of credible people have looked at Lazar's story and rationally concluded that he made it up, end quote. Now we get into a bit of his background. Lazar graduated from high school late in the bottom third of his class, with chemistry being the only science course undertaken. He subsequently attended Pierce Junior College in Los Angeles. In 1982, Lazar worked as a technician for a contractor company that provided support staff to the Los Alamos Mess and Physics Facility within the Los Alamos National Laboratory. He filed for bankruptcy in 1986, where he described himself as a self-employed film processor. Lazar owns and operates United Nuclear Scientific Equipment and Supplies, which sells a variety of materials and chemicals. Now we're going to get into some of his claims. First off, we'll start with his education. Now, Lazar claims to have obtained a master's degree in physics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, and in electronics from the California Institute of Technology, also known as Caltech. However, both universities show no record of him. Scientists Stanton T. Friedman and Donald R. Prothero have stated that nobody with Lazar's high school performance record would be accepted by MIT or Caltech. Now we get into his employment. Lazar claims to be a physicist and to have worked in this capacity during his tenure at the Los Alamos Meson Physics Facility. This assertion was echoed by a local journalist who interviewed Lazar about his interest in jet-powered cars in 1982. Some media outlets have since dubbed him a physicist. Inquiry into Lazar's position at the facility, however, revealed his role to have been a technician for a contractor firm and that he worked neither as a physicist or for Los Alamos. As such, the laboratory has no records on Lazar. Whom Prothero states was, in short, rather a minor player. The Smithsonian and various mainstream news outlets have stated that his physicist designation is self proclaimed. Since 1989, Lazar has achieved public notoriety as an Area 51 conspiracy theorist. In May of that year, he appeared in an interview with investigative reporter George Knapp on Las Vegas TV station KLAS under the pseudonym of Dennis and with his face hidden to discuss his purported employment at S4, a subsidiary facility he claimed exists near the Nellis Air Force Base installation known as Area 51. This week in our series of reports on UFOs, we've learned a number of things. That not
1: everybody who sees a UFO is crazy, that our government has lied about UFO information, that it's withheld UFO files, and even spied on UFO witnesses. We've also heard from scientists who say life elsewhere in the universe is virtually a certainty. And we heard that a majority of Americans believe that UFOs are real and come from space. Tonight. In part five of his report, George Knapp introduces us to a local man with an amazing and uh, disturbing story. George. Gary and Mary Ruth, uh, we've been working on this story for a long time, and we'll tell you right up front that it's going to be hard to swallow at first. This week we've heard the contention of UFO researchers that there is a secret government within our government. While that may be hard to believe coming from the UFO perspective, we've certainly learned in Watergate and the Iran-Contra scandal that factions within our government can and do pursue their own hidden agendas outside of the law, outside the control of Congress, or the knowledge of the American people. This is exactly the type of operation we'll hear about tonight. It's a chilling scenario with worldwide implications that may have its roots right here. Area 51, that mysterious corner of the Nevada test site, is no longer much of a secret. The fact that secretive things go on here is a given, even to the Soviets, who make daily spy flights over the facility to take a peek at what's going on. These photos, never before shown in public, are about as close as anyone will ever come to seeing what the place looks like again. The dry bed of Groom Lake, corrugated metal buildings, a three mile long runway, and some highly sophisticated radar and detection equipment. It's been known by many names over the years, Dreamland, The Ranch, The Skunk Works. If ever there was a place to test a secret new technology, this is it. And that's exactly what's been done here for decades. Area 51 is where Francis Gary Powers and the other U-2 pilots were trained in the 50s and where the U-2 itself was developed. The SR-71 spy planes that spotted Soviet missiles in Cuba in the early 60s were also developed at 51. 51 is where stealth technology was nurtured, where Star Wars devices are still tested, and where all manner of CIA monkey business has been plotted and refined. It's the perfect place for secret things, but of course, that's no secret. 51 is ringed by the forbidden vastness of the Nevada test site, by the looming Groom Mountains, and by sparsely populated desert expanses. The few people who do live out here have no love lost for the military, but they're conservative, patriotic, and they mind their own business. You ever see stuff you can't explain? Sure. Lots of stuff. Care to elaborate? No.
4: Happy anniversary!
1: On any given night at the Rachel Bar and Grill, you might find three or four people who work at Area 51. They're amid the flowing Budweisers and cowboy hats. You might find them, but they aren't going to talk to you, not about the things they've seen over the mountains. A steady trickle of curiosity seekers flows through here, strangers drawn by strange stories of lights in the night sky. Their questions also go unanswered. No one who's worked at Dreamland has ever publicly acknowledged what so many people have suspected for years, that alien technology is being tested in the Nevada desert. The speculation first surfaced in documents obtained by UFO researchers, documents about something called Project Aquarius. The documents allegedly prepared for an organization called MJ-12 state that a program to fly recovered alien spacecraft was established in 1972 and is continuing in Nevada. The National Security Agency has confirmed it does have a Project Aquarius, but denies it has anything to do with flying saucers. NSA will not say what Project Aquarius is. Speculation was heightened in 1984 when the Air Force seized nearly 90,000 acres around Groom Lake. The action was, by most accounts, illegal. During congressional hearings about the land grab, Congressman John Cyberling grilled the military about the legal authority used in the action and was told the authority was at a much, much higher level than the Air Force. Cyberling asked what authority is higher than the laws of the United States. The Air Force official said he could respond, but only in a closed briefing. In 1987, when the Air Force sought to renew its stranglehold on the Groom Range, news articles once again mentioned the talk about alien spacecraft, and subsequent articles in national magazines quoted unnamed sources about things of alien origin flying in Nevada, things that would make filmmaker George Lucas drool. Despite the speculation, no one who knew Area 51 from the inside ever talked publicly about the saucer stories.
3: Well, there's several, uh, actually nine, Uh, flying saucers, flying discs uh, that are out there of extraterrestrial origin.
1: The live interview with the shadowy Dennis drew international attention. Portions were broadcast by radio in six European countries and in a nationally televised TV special in Japan. (laughs) Actually
3: nine flying saucers, flying discs.
1: Despite numerous inquiries and feelers, Dennis has remained anonymous until now. His real name is Robert Lazar, a young scientist with eclectic interests. The choice of Dennis was an inside joke. He says that's the name of his superior at Groom Lake. It wasn't a joke to Dennis. He called right
3: after and he said, do you have any idea what we're gonna do to you now? And I, I said, well, no, and he hung up the phone.
1: Lazar's story is by any standards, fantastic. He says he's telling it in order to protect himself. He says he was hired to work at an area called S-4, which is a few miles south of Groom Lake. At S-4, he says, are flying saucers, antimatter reactors, and other working examples of technology that is seemingly beyond human capabilities. Right, this,
3: this came from somewhere else. I mean, as bizarre as that is to believe, but I mean, it's there. I saw it. I know what the current state of the art is and, in, in physics, and it's, it can't be
1: done. Checking out Lazar's credentials proved to be a difficult task. He says he earned degrees in physics and electronics, but the schools we contacted say they've never heard of him. He also said he worked as a physicist at Los Alamos National Lab, where he experimented with one of the world's largest particle beam accelerators, a half-mile-long behemoth capable of generating 700 million volts. Los Alamos officials told us they had no records of a Robert Lazar ever working there. They were either mistaken or were lying. A 1982 phone book from the lab lists Lazar, right there among the other scientists and technicians. A 1982 clipping from the Los Alamos newspaper profiled Lazar and his interest in jet cars. It too mentioned his employment at the lab as a physicist. We called Los Alamos again. An exasperated official told us he still had no records on Lazar. EG&G, which is where Lazar says he was interviewed for the job at S4, also has no records. It's as if someone has made him disappear. Well, they're trying to make me a non-person. Explain. You called where?
3: Well, the schools that I went to, the hospital that I was born at, uh, past job, and
1: uh, essentially nothing comes up with my name in it. He smiles, but out of futility, knowing the whole thing must sound ridiculous. According to Lazar, his employer was the United States Navy. He says he and other government employees would gather near EG&G, fly to Groom Lake, and then a very few people would get into a bus with blacked out or no windows and drive to S4. When you get off the bus, what do you see? It's a
3: It's Very interesting building. It's got a slope of probably about 30 degrees, The uh, which are hangar doors. And it has textured paint on it, but it looks like sand. It's made to look like the side of the mountain that it's in, whether it's to disguise it from satellite photographs
1: or what. He says he was never told exactly what he'd be working on, but figured it had something to do with advanced propulsion. On his first day, he was told to read a series of briefings and immediately realized how advanced the propulsion was.
3: The power source is an antimatter reactor. Uh, They run gravity amplifiers. There's actually two parts to the drive mechanism. Uh, it's just, it's a bizarre technology. There's no physical hookup between any of the systems in there. Uh, they
1: use gravity as a wave using wave guides, almost like microwaves. It took a while, Lazar says, before he actually saw one of the flying discs. However, there were hints everywhere.
3: Right, they had a poster, and it looked like a commercial poster almost, like it was lithographed, and you could buy it at a Kmart or something, but they were all over the place, and it had the, the disc that I coined the term, the sport model was lifted off the ground about three feet at at, uh, area S4 on the dry lake there, and uh, the catch on the bottom said they're here, and uh, those are just all over the place.
1: Later, he got to see the real thing. When I was let in, it
3: was the first time I saw the sport model in the hangar sitting down, and uh, I was told they could have walked me in the front door, but they purposely wanted to walk me by it. I was told not to say anything and just keep my eyes forward and, and walk past the disc into the office area and i did and uh, as we went by it i just kind of stuck my hands on it <laughs> just to run it alongside the thing and uh you know I, that that was about the smallest time after that i got to see it uh, actually lift off the ground and operate
1: but you, you also in between that you saw
5: more than one
3: yeah the hangars are all connected together and there are large bay doors between each one and uh there were nine total that i saw each one being different like they had the uh, assortment pack
1: security at s4 was oppressive lazar says and his superiors used fear and intimidation almost as a brainwashing tool
3: it did everything but physically hurt me
1: put a gun to your head yeah and, and said what what actually put a gun to your head
3: well they did they did that even in the in the original security briefings they had uh uh Guards there with M-16s, guys slamming their finger into my chest, screaming in my ear, some people pointing weapons at me, Uh, like I said, it's not a a good place to work.
1: That fear factor would surface later. Lazar agreed to undergo a polygraph exam as part of this report. Polygrapher Ron Slay asked about the technology Lazar had seen.
5: Did you knowingly lie when you said you had actually seen anti-gravity propulsion in operation?
1: now. The results of this exam were inconclusive. Lazar appeared to be truthful on one test, deceitful on a second. Slay recommended that a second examiner be brought in. Polygrapher no, Terry Tavernetti runs a corporate security operation and structure. is a former Los Angeles police officer. He put Lazar through four tests and concluded there was no attempt to deceive. And I left there thinking that uh, I feel we do have some credibility uh, to what uh, the subject had to say. Uh, And that's when I went to some of my colleagues. Tavernetti sent the test results to a third polygrapher who agreed the results appeared truthful. The charts were then sent to a fourth examiner who did not agree, suggesting Lazar might be relating information he'd learned from someone else. The polygraphers conferred and decided they would not issue a final statement on truthfulness until more specific testing can be conducted, and that's where it stands. Tavernetti believes that difficulty in determining Lazar's truthfulness stems from the fear that was drilled into him. I think we're talking about a subject here that is so far-reaching, and it is so emotional, and when you're dealing with emotions, this is polygraph, because we're dealing with polygraph, you're looking at fear. The fear of getting caught telling a lie because something bad will happen to you if you do.
3: Well, I am telling the truth. I, I, I've tried to prove that. Uh, what's going on up there could be the most important event in history. You're talking about contact physical <laughs> physical contact and proof of, from another another system another planet another intelligence that's got to be the biggest event in history period and it's real and it's real and it's there and uh, i had a, an extremely small part in it but i'm convinced that what i saw is absolute proof of that there is there is no way we could have created those systems there's no way we could have made the discs the power supplies anything to go with them
1: Lazar says he has no intention of going on any UFO lecture circuit. He's not looking to do any additional interviews. In fact, he wasn't too crazy about doing this one. He did it after certain unfavorable things started happening in his life, and he did it because he feels that whoever is running the show up at S4 is perpetrating a fraud on the American people and on the scientific community. We intend to have much more about this story, about the operation up there, on Monday and beyond. This is by no means the end of this series of reports. In fact, on Monday, including in our story there, support testimony from other people who say they have knowledge of the flying discs at the test site and information from people who know Lazar very well and insist his story is true.
3: If indeed they have these flying saucers, George, it seems like it'd be really hard to keep it so secret.
1: Well, uh, yeah, it would would seem that way, except for as Lazar asked his uh, superiors up there, they say it's the easiest secret in the world to keep. It's leaked out many times before and nobody believes it. What, what's the Navy saying about all of this? Well, of course, the Navy is supposed to have been his, his employer, and we have put some fairly pointed question to, questions to them. Of course, number one, it may not be the Navy at all. Information is so compartmentalized up there. No one is exactly sure who is in charge. We have uh, put the questions to several Navy departments. The answers thus far have been unsatisfactory. We've rec- applied for more information through the Freedom of Information Act, and that information uh, will be revealed on Monday as well.
3: You believe his story, don't you?
1: Yeah, I do. Yeah, I've, I've got to know him uh, pretty well over the last couple of months, and uh, I believe he's telling the truth.
0: Fascinating stuff. Thank Thanks, you George. George. He claims that the facility was adjacent to Papos Lake, which is located south of the main area one facility at Groom Lake. He claimed the site consisted of concealed aircraft hangars built into a mountainside. Lazar said that his job was to help with the reverse engineering of one of nine flying sources which he alleged were extraterrestrial in origin. He claims one of the flying sources, the one he coined the sport model, was manufactured out of a metallic substance similar in appearance and touch to liquid titanium. In a subsequent interview that November, Lazar appeared masks and under his own name. Now, he claimed that his job interview for work at the facility was contractor EG&G, and his employer was the United States Navy. Now, EG&G stated it had no records on him. His supposed employment at a Nellis Air Force Base subsidiary has also been discredited by skeptics, as well as by the United States Air Force. Lazar then claimed the U.S. government was now waging an all-out covert war against him. He said it shot out one of his tires and erased all of his educational records from Celtic and MIT. However, skeptics Donald R. Prethero, Stanton T. Friedman and Timothy D. Callahan find this to be implausible. Lazar eventually claimed that while at Area 51, his job was to reverse engineer an alien material called element 115 that he claimed was used to power an alien aircraft. Lazar has repeatedly hinted that he took a piece of element 115 from Area 51 and that this element is of great interest to the federal government. No evidence of the existence of Lazar's Element 115 has ever surfaced, which to me makes his stories harder to prove and verify everything that he has stated up to this point because it has been discredited in one way or another by various people. I do, however, tend to believe that the government may have wiped his files that would show that he was working at these locations to try and discredit him, because similar things have been done before. For example, Gary Webb. So his story may be true, and I may may believe that he had his files wiped, and maybe the government had his files wiped. But the uh, the underlying factor here is everything that he said, everything that Bob Lazar has said, has in some way been discredited by two or three other people that come in and go, well, no, that couldn't have happened. And as you, we get into the story, you will see that that the more that he talks about these things, the more evidence and proof comes out from other people that say, well, no, this isn't what happened. This is actually what happened. Bob Lazar's lie. Very much like Frank Duck's, that made all of these astounding claims and none of them have ever been able to be verified independently because there's just no evidence of it. However... It has been known before that when whistleblowers come out, the best way to get rid of somebody, if you can't kill them because they're too high profile and you can't put them in jail without people asking questions, the next best thing to do is discredit them. It's the oldest trick in the handbook. If you want to if you want to get rid of a problem and you can't kill them, can't put them in jail, can't make them disappear, you discredit them so nobody will believe them. It is a tactic that has been done many times before. Gary Webb, for example, he wrote The Dark Alliance, which is, and I will go into his story in a different podcast episode, but a short story of that, he wrote an, uh, he wrote a series of articles claiming that the, the CIA was involved in the crack cocaine epidemic. Not only did he receive backlash from that, but they destroyed his life, they took away his family, they took away his job, they took away everything until he had nothing left. Every single major newspaper fucking destroyed him, all because he made a claim that the CIA was involved in drug trafficking and it started the crack cocaine epidemic that happened in America. So my question to that is, well, if the story wasn't true, how come everyone did their darndest to destroy this guy? I'm always a big believer in thou doth protest too much. So, if his story wasn't true, why did everyone go after him and destroy his life completely and make it so that he could never work a newspaper again and basically destroyed him? If his story wasn't true, and this is the question I've said from day one, ever since I found out about this case, if his story wasn't true, if Gary Webb lied, then why did all the major newspapers and the CIA, well not so much the CIA, but the CIA stood back and watched Gary Webb destroy himself and let the other newspapers absolutely destroy him there were people that came out and even said there were groups within every major newspaper whose sole job was to destroy gary webb and the cia even said they sit back and let it happen now one has to ask the question if there was no truth to the story why did you have to discredit and destroy gary webb to make sure that he never wrote another article ever again that's my question. Now, obviously, Bob Lazar's in a very different situation, but as I said, if you're a high-profile person that makes these audacious claims that you worked on this and worked on that, and it was part of the government, it's not really out of the wheelhouse that the government would destroy your records, that they would whitewash your records to discredit you. So, I don't necessarily disbelieve that Bob Lazar's records may have been destroyed, but the fact of the matter is, there's no evidence to back up any of his other claims. There's no evidence to back up that he worked for us the subsidiary that he worked at area 51 that he did this that he did that there's no evidence to back up any of it there are those that believe him and there are those that don't believe him i'm in the category of i can believe maybe that the government destroyed his records for having worked at celtic and mit but then on the other hand all the other evidence discredits him so it's like while i may believe one thing there are two or three other things that i can't believe because there's no evidence for me to believe it so I'm kind of in the I'm kind of stuck in the more I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of Bob Lazar's story because it sounds so much like Frank Ducks. Frank Ducks claimed he was an ecumite, then he claimed that he that he won the Medal of Honor, then he claimed that he worked for the CIA. None of it was true because everyone just kept saying we don't know what you're talking about. And there was all this evidence that discredited Frank Darks. So Frank Darks and Bob Lazar's story is so much the same. And that's where my problem lies is the credibility. They have huge credibility problems. And that's where I have a big problem. Now, Lazar eventually claimed that he was working with an element called element 115. So what exactly is element 115? Well, according to Lazar, this alien artifact is a highly radioactive element that allows alien spacecraft to traverse the cosmos impervious to gravity's effects. Now, Lazar has said for years that he worked on the material at Area 51 and that it can be used to power spacecraft. Lazar once told Larry King, quote, it's a superhero heavy element. It's a unique element. When it's exposed to radiation, it produces its own gravitational field, end quote. Its own gravitational field, and it's what's used to lift and propel the aircraft, end quote. Lazar has claimed that the propulsion of the studied vehicle ran on an antimatter reactor and was fueled by the chemical element with atomic number 115, or E-115, which at the time was provisionally named Unapintium, and had not been yet been artificially created. It was first synthesised in 2003 and later named Muscovium. He said that the propulsion system relied on a stable isotope of E-115, which allegedly generates a gravity wave that allowed the vehicle to fly, and to evade visual detection by bending light around it. No stable isotopes of muscovium have yet been synthesized. All have proven extremely radioactive, decaying in a few hundred milliseconds. Lazar said the craft was was dismantled and the reactor he studied was topped by a sphere or semi-sphere which emitted a force field capable of repulsing human flesh. He explained that the craft was split into two main levels. The reactor was positioned at the center of the upper level with an antenna extending to the top surrounded by three gravity amplifiers. These connected to gravity emitters on the lower level which can rotate 180 degrees to output a gravity beam or anti-gravity wave and that the craft would then travel belly first into this distortion field conspiracy theorists and Lazar himself have suggested that Lazar stole a piece of element 115 from Area 51 and that he has it to this day. The only presently known form of muscovium has a half-life of 0.65 seconds and would thus have decayed very quickly. Lazar has claimed that during his joining the program, he read briefing documents describing the historical involvement of Earth for the past 10,000 years, with extraterrestrial beings described as grey aliens from a planet orbiting the twin binary star system Zeta Reticuli. As of September 2019, no extrasolar planets have been found in the Zeta Reticuli system. In 1989, Lazar said the seats of the saucer he saw were approximately child-sized, and that he had seen alien cavadas of a corresponding. He said that while walking down a hallway at S4, he briefly glanced through a store window and saw what he interpreted as two men in lab coats facing down and talking to something small with long arms. Three decades later, he said he did not think he saw an alien, but speculated that he saw a doll used as a reference for the size of the alleged aliens, and that a nickname used for them was The Kids. In the years after his initial appearance, Lazar largely returned to private life. He eventually opened a business called United Nuclear Scientific, a scientific supplies and equipment store based in New Mexico and then Michigan. From radioactive ore to ammonium nitrate, a quick check of Lazar's scientific supply company's website reveals the business caters towards the exotic and potentially dangerous side of science. His story has drawn significant media attention, controversy, supporters and detractors. Lazar has no evidence of any alien life or technology now we get into his public appearances in the media Lazar and longtime friend Gene Huff ran the Desert Blast Festival, an annual festival in the Nevada desert for pyrotechnic enthusiasts. The festival started in 1987, but was only formally named in 1991. The name was inspired by Operation Desert Storm. The festival features homemade explosives, rockets, jet-powered vehicles, and other pyrotechnics with the aim of emphasizing the fun aspects of chemistry and physics. Lazar was featured in producer George Knapp and Jeremy Kenyon's Lockyer Corbell's documentary Bob Lazar, are area 51 and flying saucers and joe rogan's podcast
1: <laughs> the joe rogan experience
4: i first heard your story decades ago i've uh, i told you last night when we went out to dinner i've seen pretty much every interview you've ever given i've followed the story incredibly closely uh-huh. but for people who don't know the story let's give them the bullet points you used to work at area 51 and area 51 you got you you went like huh?
5: well, you know we Careful. want to be accurate okay. area s four s four okay it's about fifteen miles south of area fifty one okay but,
4: um you worked in what would you how would you describe it uh, a, I,
5: I guess within the area fifty one compound, you can call that a subset of area fifty one
4: and you got that job before that you were working.
5: Before that, I had worked at Los Alamos right. National Labs in New Mexico. And you were involved
4: in what kind of work?
5: Nuclear did? weapon development, physics. I mean, that's they, they do everything there.
4: So how do they approach you to say, hey, Bob, why don't you come on out to the Nevada desert?
5: Well, the way this went down was um, at that time, it was 1982, I had um, put uh, – a jet engine in my, my Honda. And Los Alamos put it on the front page of the paper. It said, you know, uh, Los Alamos man, physicist at the lab, you know, built this 200-mile-an-hour, you know, Honda jet car. that I, I drove to work every day. <laughs> so uh, so I was, I was known in Los Alamos, the guy with the weird car, and, the, you know, you could hear it from, you know, a mile away. Anyway... The day that came out on the front page of the paper was the day Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb, was giving a lecture down there at the lab. And we didn't have much going on that day in our group, and I asked if I could go down there. And um, I went down there early, and Ed Teller was outside, leaning on a brick wall there and reading the front page of the paper— now, this is a guy out of history, so I introduced myself. Hey, I'm the guy you're reading about there. And we talked for a little while, and it was cool. Uh, you know, fast forward to years later, I had moved out to Las Vegas and had, you know, left Los Alamos and, you know, went on to other things, and I wanted to get back into the scientific community. You know, I left to start other businesses and, and that sort of thing. So I sent resumes out, and one of them went out to Ed Teller and referenced our meeting. You know, back back in that the day, and uh, anyway, he remembered me, and gave me a reference, somebody to contact at EGNG, and that's pretty much how it started.
4: So, you get a phone call or a letter? Like, what do you get?
5: Well, I got a. What did I get? I got a letter initially, and um, went down for an interview. Probably a couple times and it was down at uh, EG&G Special Projects which was um, at McCarran Airport at that time out in Las Vegas.
4: And did they give you any sort of job description of what you were applying for?
5: Um, They said it was for, I can't remember exactly what they did, this was a long time ago but I I think it was um, advanced propulsion or something like that. Something relatively generic and they said it's in a remote area. you know, it's going to be some days on, some days off. And, um, you know, it was kind of a, it, it was kind of a, not exactly a full time job, but you might have to be out there for two weeks at a time and take two weeks off. So it was kind of a, the work schedule would be kind of broken up.
4: And did this seem attractive to you or did it seem weird? How was no, it? it
5: really wasn't weird because people that work at the test site, anybody that's familiar with the area up there, um, you know, working at the nuclear test site uh, or at the Tonopah Test Range north of there—that's uh, typically how things go.
4: So you had known about it from the scientific community because Area 51 at that time was no. They still didn't say classified. anything about Area 51. Okay, so they, they just, just
5: said it was in a you know in a remote location, and you just know it was up at the test site. Right. So, but there was no mention of Area 51 at that time.
4: So they've done hundreds of nuclear tests in Nevada Nevada the, that whole area was there's been there's giant chunks of Nevada that people Yeah, were-
5: there's a big piece of Nevada and it's split up into different areas. There's a nuclear test site, there's Area 51, there's the Tonopah Test Range north of that. There's little sub-areas, there's areas where they test chemical weapons and things like that. So it's all broken up as a, you know, gigantic test area.
4: So take me back to first day on the job. You accept a the job. They take you out there.
5: Yeah, it's, um, the first day really, I didn't really get to see a whole lot. The first day was essentially just paperwork. That's when I flew into Area 51 proper, and I left uh, McCarran Airport and flew what they call the Janet flights, just, um, you know, a passenger plane from Las Vegas to Area 51. And it was really just going through a mountain of paperwork that day. Uh, from security clearances to um, God, there was it, it was like two or three hours of just solid paperwork, and that was that was really an uneventful first day.
4: So you're working there, and while you're working there, you're under this crazy schedule. Uh, forgive me for explaining your story, but you uh, would get these phone calls. You would have to go to the to the airport at eleven p.m., and your wife started thinking that you were having an affair.
5: Yeah, apparently so. Um, now, I did give my permission to have, you know, as as part of the, you know, security clearance process, um, I I gave written permission to have the phones monitored and things of that sort. So they weren't doing any covert stuff. They, um, you know, with any Q, Q clearance, or which is civilian top secret clearance or military top secret clearance, they go talk to friends and, you know places you've been, make sure you're not connected to foreign countries. But, you know, monitoring your phone is nothing unusual. However, they insisted that, you know, you don't even talk to your loved one, to your partner, to your wife, whatever, about what's going on. So she was essentially in the dark and didn't know the phone was being monitored. Well, part of the security clearance is that Not only do you not have any connections to foreign countries and aren't a maniac, but you have to have a stable home life, too. Uh, Well, she started having an affair with a flight instructor. Now, they were monitoring this on the phone, and they knew it, and I didn't. So they stopped me coming in, and their attitude at the time was, um, we need to see how this is going to play out and if Lazar is going to get a little weird or anything. So let's just, you know hold them off from coming in, and, uh, you know, see what happens.
4: And they explained this to you, what was happening?
5: Well, after the fact, yeah, because time kind of went on, and there were guys that were following me around, and I started getting a little concerned, going, well, Chit, are they booting me out of the project? And if so, they're not just going to let me hang out at home and go get a new job knowing what I know. So as time went on, I started getting a little concerned and I took my closest friends and just kind of got together. I said, Hey, remember that job I told you about? This is what's going on. And, uh, like you don't need to take my word for it. Uh, Wednesday night, we need to all go out here. I want to show you what's going on. So I took everybody and we went out to, um, remember since I had the test flight schedule and went outside the base, um, out into the desert, and so everybody could see, you know, one of the high performance tests, and uh, you know it left quite an imprint on everybody. So they knew I wasn't.
4: And there's videos crazy. of these tests, right?
5: Yeah, but remember, this is in the, it's in in the dark in the 80s with a big monster size camcorder, and you got mm-hmm. you know a bright light jumping around. But uh, yeah, I mean we did video of it, but there's no, by today's standards, it's. But is you know, your video specifically available? The video that you took. Yeah, well, George Knapp has it. it. Is it online? I, it Do you know I have it? no idea. Jeremy?
2: Yeah, I show clips of it in my film. It's right. it's online, and someone did a deep analysis of it. Uh, it was interesting uh, to, to take a look at how— Pull he, this
4: microphone up to your face. Give me about a fist from your face.
2: All right. Um, you know, to see how his video looks now, but as far as video evidence, I mean, we're, we are talking 80s and The most important thing is the human story here— Everybody that he took up there on three separate occasions, they don't all like each other. They don't all talk. They all agree on one thing. They saw something that night at the exact point in time and space that Balbazar said, and remember, this is 17, 15, 17 miles south of Area 51. No one even knew really about Area 51. We're talking Papoose Lake, and they all agree. They saw something that night they had never seen before, and they've never seen since right when he said it. So that's one of like the six things where I'm like, How did he know you can dismiss him i i tried to dismiss it but some things we can't get around and and there's about five or six of them how did he know about those if jamie wants to find that video right now what would he look under bob lazar ufo s4 area 51 just kind of like that uh so it's like the s4 ufo video bob lazar and a guy does an analysis but you're analyzing these 80s videos right He, he from the very beginning bob never said I have proof of my story and I'm going to tell the world. He said at the very beginning, I cannot prove my story. That's not why I'm telling this. George Knapp convinced him to tell people and he lived through it. And I, I
4: didn't believe it either until I, I talked with George. Okay. So you you filmed these this test flight, one test flight, and then you get caught.
5: Actually, it was, I think, the third time because it, we went out there the first time <clears throat> Everybody saw it. Everybody was amazed because it did some radical maneuvers. And, um, you know, everybody had a lot but to does say about m- it. Maneuvers
4: that I've seen, I've seen the video. It doesn't – I don't think there's something we have now that does that.
5: No. In terms and, of, like, a
4: human piloted craft. I mean, I don't know,
5: obviously, what the government – No, it's, it's impossible. Nothing can move like that. And remember, we didn't start filming from the very beginning. You know, it, the, the we were waiting for something, you know, to happen. The craft took off and then came f- – Flying at a stop, you know, turned at a right angle, flew back. And then, you know, after it did some, you know, amazing stuff we were like, to get the camera. And then you know, we started filming. So it doesn't have all of it on there. It just has some. The way uh, I
4: describe it to my friends and they said, what does it look like? I said, take a laser pointer and then have a wall and then move it around the wall. Like, you know how it moves around yeah. the wall? It doesn't seem like it has anything to do with inertia or physics or it's not in- impeded in any way by the atmosphere. Yeah. That's what it looks
5: like. You're essentially separated. From reality, as crazy as that sounds, with uh, being in, in case it's own gravitational envelope, I- inertia is not going to affect it. And, you know, this is uh, this is how some of those recent sightings of Commander David Fravor, I'm sure you've heard of the yes. Tic Tac U- UFO. I mean, he describes exactly, the, the thing operates exactly the way I was describing. That's why uh, he was interested to talk to me. Um, but we saw this. And you know, on the way home, it's like, it, hey, we got away with it. We should try it again the next test flight day. So this became a thing to do. And I think it was on the the third time that we got caught. I mean, we started becoming a little careless. I think we took a motorhome out there. And, you know, I mean, it was like the stupidest thing you could like possibly a grill, imagine. Started
4: tailgating.
5: Yeah, it was ridiculous. And um, again, you're in your twenties. Yeah, and you know what was funny was. Um, we went out there, and my friend Gene Huff and I were leaning on the front of a vehicle. And just for some reason, we just started talking shit. Like, uh, well, I hope they realize that uh, – I don't remember what we were saying, but, you know, that something about attacking the base or something along those lines and stealing the the craft or something like that. It so, crazy. And – um Then about 20 feet in front of us, we see a little green light fall on the ground and roll to us. And unbeknownst to us, now it's pitch black. You can't see your hand in front of your face. There were a bunch of guards standing right out there. And they had a night vision scope where they were like from here to the wall looking at us, listening to us. And the guy dropped it. And the scope rolled over to us. And you could see the green screen. (laughs) We turned the lights on. And all these guys are there. So it was – Whoa. yeah. Yeah. So we did incredibly stupid stuff and got caught as we should have. Cause so it was when they
4: catch you and they bring you in, then what happens?
5: Well, I went in for debriefing. The following day, I went to Indian Springs Air Force Base, which is kind of a defunct base that they used to use at the nuclear test site. And this is when they brought out um, the transcript of the phone call with my wife. And... You know, they sat me down and we said, you know, when we meant to keep the secret, we meant you can't tell your friends, right? You know, and it just being sarcastic and trying to. Mm -hmm. um, And then they got real serious. Uh, But this is where they, you know, took the transcript out and were reading me what uh, my wife and, you know, our friend were talking about. And uh, I don't know, it was a hard time.
4: So, what happens from there? What do they do with you? Why don't they arrest you? Why I don't, don't they I don't know. Your I don't
5: know why I'm not sure they exactly they knew what to do. But they did let me go that night and I went home. And th- this is kind of when the most stressful part started cuz you're realizing that you're being monitored. Yeah, now Yeah, now I know not only am I being monitored, but now I know I'm in trouble. And uh it wasn't a short time after that that I contacted you know at that time the Only investigative reporter I had heard of in Las Vegas was George Knapp and, um, you know, told him some of the story because I had no idea what the hell was going to happen at that point.
4: So George Knapp tries to dissect your story, tries to find holes in it, tells it. Puts it online and makes everybody aware of it, and that's how I found out about
5: it. yeah, to make a long story short yeah. <laughs> what
4: what happens yeah, to really make a long story short what happens from there on? I mean, do they contact you and say, Hey, Bob, it's probably a good idea if you shut up oh, do well, they try to label you as crazy was there
5: there boy, there were a lot of things that happened at you know between that point. Um, I'm leaving out a lot of stuff uh, to fill in the story. Uh, We'd have to go back to Los Alamos and, and, well, I really don't want to talk about that. The um,
4: Top secret weapons stuff that you were working on.
5: No, I'm talking about the 115. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I don't know. I have to think about how I'd. What is the problem? <laughs> <With this. laughs> I, don't, I, don't to, I don't want to get myself into more trouble by admitting something, so um, I just have to dance around a couple. He was okay. rated
4: just during the filming of the movie. People yeah. thought it was the movie's great, by the way. Thanks, Joe. And uh, it's on Netflix right now. If anybody wants to check it out,
0: Lazar had met and discussed his alleged works on UFOs with Navy pilot and Commander David Frava, who witnessed the USS Nimitz UFO incident in 2004. In 2017, Lazar's workplace was raided by the FBI and local police, which Lazar theorizes was to recover Element 115, a substance he says he took from a government lab. Records obtained through a Freedom of Information request show the raid was part of a murder investigation to determine whether his company sold thallium to a murder suspect in Michigan. Lazar is not listed as a suspect in that investigation. According to reports written by Michigan State Police Sergeant Detective Thomas Rajala, the events leading up to the search of United Nuclear began in late 2015 with the mysterious death of 31-year-old Janelle Struels. Rajala says doctors concluded struzel was poisoned and died of thallium toxicity. Colorless, odorless and tasteless, thallium sulfate has been described as the poison is poison due to the substance high toxicity and difficulty to detect. Thallium is most often used in the manufacture of electronics as well as in glass manufacturing and the pharmaceutical industry. When isolated it looks like tin. Thallium is a regular topic of conversation among element collectors who try to obtain samples of as many elements in the periodic table table was possible According to the Michigan State Police Report and United Nuclear Scientific website, Lazar's company sells thallium, and the police search was intended to learn more about who he'd sold the material to. According to the report, Lazar said sometime in March of 2017, a woman provided him with her deceased brother's element collection, which Lazar agreed to sell through his website. According to the report and Lazar, thallium was indeed one of the elements in this collection. Quote, thallium is something we never carried before and was just recently donated to us by the family. Family of an element collector that died so we now had a collection of some unusual materials we'd never had before said lazar in an interview quote because the case is still an active investigation, some names and details are redacted from reports. MSP reports suggest that police believe one of their suspects may have purchased materials used in Struzel's murder from Lazar. The documents note that investigators obtained search warrants for a suspect's Google, Yahoo, and Bing search results and seized computers and other data from a suspect. Shortly after obtaining information about those internet searches, investigators decided they wanted to question Lazar. The MSP report indicates that local and state police travelled to several areas in Michigan to conduct interviews. During this same time frame, it's noted efforts will be made to contact interview Lazar United Nuclear in person regarding any thallium sales specifically to an unnamed individual." End quote. Rajala goes on to say in his report that a police officer had recently discovered United Nuclear advertised thallium for sale on its website. What really muddies this even further is that in late 2018, Lazar was the subject of a documentary made by filmmaker Jeremy Kenyon, Locklear Lear, Corbel, Cole, Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers. Lazar and Corbel have publicly said Lazar's company was raided as part of a sustained surveillance campaign against a man who's been called a reluctant UFO messiah. In the documentary, Lazar and Corbell discreetly discussed the possibility of Lazar having taken a piece of the mysterious element 115. The police search of United Nuclear came the very next morning after this cloak and dagger discussion, according to Lazar and Corbell. In an interview with Larry King, Corbell and Lazar claimed during the search that FBI agents were able to report back verbatim a portion of their previous day's private conversation at the annual UFO festival in McMinnville, Oregon. Lazar told a crowd that the FBI had played an audio recording of he and Corbel's Element 115 discussion. According to the MSP reports, police had already obtained search warrants a day prior to Corbell and Lazar's conversation. Corbell told Motherboard that the raid was actually related to the element, quote, if what Lazar has been telling us for 30 years is true, then a cover story to distract from the actual intent of the raid is plausible, said Corbell. end quote. Lazar and Corbell's statements are contradicted, however, by someone claiming to be an employee of United Nuclear who posted on Reddit the day after the raid. That person under the pseudonym PseudoSmart said that, and I quote, Before the rumor mill gets out of control, we wanted to set the record straight. End quote. In a thread titled, Bob Lazar's Business United Nuclear was just raided by the FBI. Quote, We had a customer a few years ago that murdered his wife. FBI, local law enforcement came with a warrant to get our records on him. We provided them the documents and all the info we had on him. They wrote in that Reddit thread. End quote. To verify the authenticity of their claims, Pseudosmarts included a link to an Imgur IMG photo showing Bob Lazar standing in United Nuclear while holding a sign that read, Hello Reddit 72017. When asked about the Reddit post, Lazar declined to comment. Which makes his claims all the more harder to believe or refute. I mean, Lazar claims one thing and someone else comes out and provides actual proof that what Lazar is saying isn't actually quite true. Now, it seems that Lazar can't seem to stay away from controversy. Oddly enough, this isn't the first time Bob Lazar and the sale of deadly toxins have come up. In 2006, several news outlets accused Lazar of piddling poison after he was found to be selling the same radioactive poison used to kill former KGB spy Alexander Litvinenko. Located in Albuquerque, NM at the time, United Nuclear's Scientific website assured customers that they would run no risk of being tipped off to the US Department of Homeland Security. Security, Newsweek reported. Now we get into Lazar's criminal convictions. In 1990, Lazar was arrested for aiding and abetting a prostitution ring. This was reduced to felony pandering, to which he pleaded guilty. He was ordered to do 150 hours of community service, stay away from brothels, and undergo psychotherapy. In 2006, Lazar and his wife Joy White were charged with violating the Federal Hazardous Substances Act for shipping restricted chemicals across state lines. The charges stem from a 2003 on United Nuclear's business offices where chemical cell records were examined. Lazar claimed later that during the raid, he'd heard some members of the SWAT team say, and I quote, this is total bullshit, it's nothing like they told us in the briefing, end quote, which based on everything else, it's hard to believe or corroborate. United Nuclear pleaded guilty to three criminal counts of introducing into interstate commerce and aiding and abetting the introduction into interstate commerce, banned hazardous substances. In 2007, United Nuclear was fined 7,500 for violating a law prohibiting the sale of chemicals and components used to make illegal fireworks. Journalist Stephen Roderick and author Neil Nixon wrote that further doubts have been cast on Lazar's credibility due to his criminal activity. Author Timothy Good and filmmaker Jerry Kenyon Lockyer Corbett, who have perpetrated Lazar's story concur with this assertion. (laughs) The Joe Rogan experience. That's the other thing that Bob said that I thought was
4: really fascinating was that there was some documentation that they were uh, showing him that claimed that we are the product of accelerated evolution.
2: He was shown a lot of shit and he doesn't like talking about it because he doesn't know if it's just total fucking nonsense. Right. You know, he is sure that they showed him shit just to see if he'd fucking say crazy shit Right, see if he'd talk all he all he cares about is the is what he saw what he knows is real but if if you do just talk with him privately they did show him you know a, a photograph of an autopsy of a being with a singular organ they told him that yeah the human genome had been altered you know um just all sorts of crazy shit and he just has no idea if it's true or if
4: it's. Mm. God, the whole thing is so, it's so wild. I just wish, you know, if Bob's lying, my God, what a great liar. He's amazing at it. Right. And he's been telling the same lie for 30 plus years. And then there's elements of it that, how would he know that? Like, how would he know about Element 115? I mean, Element 115, when he was talking about it, was theoretical.
2: Yeah, he got lucky. He's the lucky. He's the luckiest guy on He always chooses <laughs> shit that ends up being fucking right. I know. Uh, you know, That's gravity funny. waves
4: and like, you know how these crap op- like. Look, man. Explain the one element one fifteen to people because the, we don't, people who don't know what we're talking about that haven't seen the documentary or haven't sure. seen the podcast we did together. So, so the way Bob
2: understood it was that there's he was working on power and propulsion, right? so of one of these we call them flying saucers you know fucking alien vehicle
4: that looked like this one exactly right here from exactly
2: yeah and um e- you know even like aerospace people are like well if if you know it's the most ingenious thing is the way he described it powered you know people are like impressed by it i'm like maybe that's just what he saw but anyway so the 115 was the power source he said and basically. You know, you put it in and it, it releases antimatter and creates a gravity propulsion, a, a, gravity, a gravitational field, and then you had directional, three-directional emitters. Look, that's how they think these things operate. Traveling faster than the speed of sound with no sonic boom, all, you know transmedium, all domain, the, these things seem to defy typical propulsion. It's not outside of the realm of what we understand. It's outside of the realm of what we can replicate now one day we might catch up
4: and this element 115 that Bob talked about powering this spaceship mm-hmm. was only theoretical back in the late 1980s when he first started discussing it
2: right we hadn't
4: synthesized it yet right well it wasn't a th- synthesizing it was uh, it was created by a particle accelerator right exactly it was, so it really it was detected because it was I think it was but like we smashed
2: a, right so we kind of synthesized And that we smashed
4: Particles okay, together so And then we're like Oh for like a second There it was Yeah I think it's a, a fraction Of a second Yeah and
2: Bob always yeah. said That if he's right If it was 115 That's how he understood It to be mm-hmm. If he's right Then we will someday You know be able to Make a nominal amount Of it that will be stable that, That's yeah. you know What he says You got another one of those Yeah you want one Yeah we'll try one
0: Alright uh, Here
2: we go Thanks so. man
4: Nice Yeah the whole thing Is just so interesting It it never ends. Yeah. It never ends. It is interesting. I just like... Until something actually happens, and my thought is like when something actually happens, how will people handle it? UFO whistleblower could get immunity under new amendment. So this is what you were talking about? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the the thing is I, I know some of the people doing this, and they're like, you know, they want some nominations, man. You know, who should talk to them? Well, you got your own fucking logo. Here you there you go, buddy. Thanks, brother.
4: Yeah, these are uh, Foundation Cigar J R E cigars. They're good. Shout out to my friend Nick from Foundation Cigars too. He hooked me up with that cabinet. Got a full humidor up on this bitch now. Wow. Thank you. Um, so uh so this element one fifteen. Yeah. This is uh Proven by a particle accelerator, and Bob Lazar's claim was that they had a stable um, amount of this element one fifteen that had come from this other place. And did they know where this other place was, where this s- s- element one fifteen supposedly had come from, what a- another planet? Yeah, I mean,
2: again, this is like what he was told, so he's kind of allergic mm-hmm. to. But um, you know, he said that the documents said Zeta Reticuli, like you know. Uh, I guess a binary star system or something. That's what were in the documents. Now, if that's true or not, look, remember, he thought it was the US. He thought this vehicle was ours. Right. And then he, he, until he walked inside of it. That's his whole thing. It blew him away. You know, it's hard to buy what someone like Bob is telling you
4: if you don't know the person. You see people in their lives, man. Like, what do you imagine being him? and that actually happening to you, and then you having to go back to reality. Right. And tell people, or not tell people, just live your life, and have the burden of this information, the burden of this thought. Just uh, turn upside down the other way. There you go, flip the top. I got flip the top. There you go, and then pull Thanks, down. Brother. I mean, the burden of that kind of information When Even discussing it you seem like such a psycho (laughs) You know yeah, most people almost instantaneously uh, other than a real journalist like George Knapp Most people are going to think you're out of your fucking mind.
2: Yeah, they just dismiss you. Yeah. Yeah Why would you why would you even do it? Like what would be your motivation? What would you get out of that?
4: Well his motivation was he was seriously worried that they were gonna take him out Because he knew so much, and uh, they had cut off of his... For folks who don't know the whole story, just give you a brief synopsis. What happened was Bob allegedly was working on back-engineering these aircrafts, these vehicles, these spaceships. And uh, in doing so, you have to have a very high level of clearance. Well, with that high level of clearance comes complete government surveillance. So they monitor your phone calls, monitor everything... Turns out Bob's wife was having an affair, so they don't tell Bob that his wife's having an affair. But they cut off his job. They're like, "You're too you too much of a potential to be emotionally unstable. We can't have you working on these top secret, super sensitive things." Yeah, it's logical. While, yeah, while your life is probably going to fall find apart. Out some bad shit. Yeah. So he doesn't know this, and so he's they don't give him any information, so he freaks out, and so he starts telling his friends. And he's like, come with me. I'll show you the launch. I'm not lying. People forget that. Yes. It, he he went out and he showed people a craft
2: that didn't look like any normal craft come up right when he said it would. Yeah. Over a base that wasn't even known then really well. And a sub base, an area, not Area 51 proper. He, again, he's the luckiest motherfucker in the world. He did it three weekends in a row till he got caught. Right. So it's just like, man, every time you try to call bullshit on him, I tried it so hard on so many things <laughs> you know, people think i'm just some fucking believer i'm not bro
4: the only thing that people have ever called bullshit on him is that he said he might have seen an actual alien but he said well, he was walking down a hallway and looked through one of those little tiny windows that's in a door you know those little tiny like 12 uh, inch square windows and he peered in it quickly as he was walking by and it seemed like there was a small thing that was sitting on a chair and there's people standing over it but He doesn't know if it was a doll. He doesn't know if it was. And so in his mind, he's like, fuck, did I see an alien? Like, what the fuck? But he can't go back. It's not like everything's. If you work on top secret stuff, apparently everything's very compartmentalized. Like the people that work on metallurgy don't have access to the people that work on propulsion that don't have access to the people that if there is a biological entity that they examine it. Which frustrated the fuck out of him, right? He said, that's not how you do science. It's not how you do science. Right. And, he, and he, he says,
2: I wasn't the most qualified person to be there. Maybe right. they hired me because they could easily dismiss me. You know, he's like, why didn't we have better people on this? You know, people that were more. So he was really frustrated. And he said to me, like, he thought it was a crime against the scientific community. You know, to if they have this stuff, like he says, you know, he says it was a, a crime. And, you know, he, he talks about that thing through the window. He's so funny about it. You know i sat him down for long you know many sessions long really trying to get at him get it out of him yeah he goes you know jeremy i think they were just obsessed with measurements i go well, what do you mean and he and he's like well look there was somebody in something in a chair but it was small maybe they were trying to just measure it to see if it would fit in a craft so that's how he kind of gets around like did he see something or not he doesn't right. know like
4: it could have been a doll that they That's constructed what that was roughly the same height as these things were he just doesn't want to go there right and so these creatures that were in this vehicle if there were were creatures in this vehicle there were three seats yeah and he estimated they had to be how big
2: your typical like what you think of as like a little gray alien man 3/4 feet right he said they looked like they were made for children
4: mm the seats
2: yeah, and so look and every time I try to be like dismiss Bob myself There's something that creeps in my mind. I'm like hold on hold on like I find out That he, that he was telling the truth like recently I had it verified that you know He did work at air 51 like I know I know I had a guy I found the guy after 30 years that, that when he wouldn't talk with George the guy that did a security clearance hmm I found him I talked to him multiple times about this and he did clearance for Bob for the test site but even more recently from people that have position to access that information, it was confirmed. I just want you to know, he worked out there. Now I have people that were out there that saw him.
4: On a Janet flight, Bob worked out there. And a Janet flight is uh, those the- on unmarked planes that would leave from the uh, Vegas airport and head into Area Fifty One. That's right. And and uh, you know, so here's the deal,
2: man. Like. It's the cumulative evidence about Bob that I, you know, as a friend of his, like, I, you know, I have no reason to doubt him. And all the evidence tells me that it happened exactly like he said. And he's explaining it to the best of his ability and to his own detriment. Actually, before coming on your show, man, he's probably the most hated dude. For some reason, people go crazy about him. They either love him or hate him. Well, I think
4: your documentary turned a lot of people's opinions about him as well. Thank you, brother. But then brother. having him on, I mean, some people still call bullshit. They think, like, his migraines That's were okay. convenient. Oh, come on. You but, saw, yeah, you saw that. But he that. was having him. He kidding? was having him in the green room before we started going on. He was they... very nervous about doing it. Of course, man. he had been beat up his whole life about this shit. Also, I gave him McDonald's before. I think his wife was super <laughs> pissed at me, and I
2: was like, "Are to give him a salad?" No, he gets really like crushing migraines. Oh. But you know, people that are going to call bullshit on that—we're talking about fucking UFOs. If you're going to call bullshit on a migraine, what are you even listening
4: for? I I, I didn't feel like it was bullshit. It wasn't. I felt bullshit. like the whole thing was—it was uncomfortable for him, for sure. But it didn't seem like he was lying. But you know, look, some people that are really good at liars. But usually, when you're really good at lying, you lie about a lot of stuff. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. Lie there's lie a consi-
2: there's a consistency yeah. in people's lives. And the deeper I got in chilling with his mom, chilling with his family, chilling with yeah. friends that have known him forever, new friends, every single person, and he doesn't talk to about UFOs, by the way, like all that. So he never talks about that. Just normal life situations. Right. The, the the one thing they all said to me. Bob wouldn't waste his fucking time with making up a story, and he'd probably make up a better one. That in the rest, he would, and Bob right. always says that. He goes, man, I wish I could fill the voids for people. He goes, it's a horrible fucking story, but he goes, it happens to be what happened. Right? If I was making one up, he goes, man, I got some other cool ideas, like, you know what I mean? Right, but-
4: of course, of course. And also, it's like if you're a liar, you generally lie a lot. Like, liars don't just lie one time That's in their right. life, and then you catch them. You, they're inconsistent. Like. He was lying long before there was an internet. I mean, or excuse me, he was telling the story long before the, there was an internet. So if he was lying, mm-hmm. like in the late 80s, like, there there would be inconsistencies in his story. Like, yeah. he would forget how he said it, he would fuck something up, or... Dude, for the research I
2: did for this, for the documentary, like, I, I told him, you gotta give me full access to your life, dude. Like, boxes, whatever, don't mm-hmm. open them. Let me get all your tapes, everything. Right. I was so shocked, like... People, if they're trying to hide something, they're real careful around you. You know, mm-hmm. just that's never that was not my experience. But here's my other thing is like, do we have to believe any one single person to understand that this is
4: no, yeah, this is a real phenomenon? No, but he's one of the more interesting cases mm-hmm. because if he's telling the truth, that means that the government has been working on these things for decades and decades yep. and that they have gotten this. They've gotten themselves in this pickle where they can't publicly disclose what they know and what they have access to because they've had all these people work on these things secretly and they sort of have uh, a a long history
0: of hiding information. Right. To date, there's never been any tangible evidence proving Lazar ever set foot inside Area 51, much less worked on alien spaceships or obtained any mysterious elements. on unanswered questions. Christopher Scott Kyle, born April 8th of 1974 and died February 2nd of 2013, was a United States Navy SEAL sniper.